Thank you for tuning into this webinar, GASB 87, Lease Implementation is here. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH. AGH was one of the first firms in its region to develop a practice specializing in public sector entities. It remains a leading CPA and advisory firm serving state and local governments as well as other public sector organizations. Its professionals deal exclusively with issues affecting the public sector, the kinds of issues you face each day. Today's speaker is Tara Laughlin. Tara is a member of AGH's public sector team and she focuses exclusively on serving governmental and not-for-profit entities. Her practice includes some of the largest local government entities in the Midwest. Tara has earned the Certified Government Financial Manager credential from the Association of Government Accountants and is an active member of the Government Finance Officers Association. She's also a member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Kansas Society of Certified Public Accountants. The GASB 87 Accounting for Leases implementation date is finally here. The standard replaces the current accounting for leases and will require more leases to be recognized on the statement of net position. Learn the details about accounting for leases from both the lessee and the lessor side, as well as some implementation best practices. Thank you, Mike. Um, before I get started in too much detail, if you would like to in the chat feature, you might just drop in what kind of entity you're associated with. Um, are you a city, county, maybe a business type only one like an airport or water and sewer, school district, maybe you're in public accounting. Um, that might just give me a little bit of feel for the audience um, as we go throughout the presentation today. Some of our learning objectives, um, really what this webinar is going to do is walk through the GASB 87 standard from start to finish. Um, and highlight all the topics that are within the standard. So it's a pretty robust standard. Uh, we have a lot of material to cover um, in our two hours of CPE today. So again, as Mike said, if you have questions, please feel free to, to drop those in the question bar box and we'll probably circle back after the webinar on those. Um, so our process today is we're gonna first learn to identify what is a lease under GASB 87. So what kind of contracts, agreements, transactions, do you have to even worry about um, GASB 87 accounting and disclosures for? And then once you have identified those, what are the key, those key contract terms that you need to be able to identify within those contracts to perform then the entries and disclosures that are required by the standard? We're gonna spend some time at the end to wrap up discussing some best practices and implementing GASB 87 um, to try to help you get through this implementation um, as well and efficiently as possible. I would say over my 12 or so years of experience, this is probably one of the standards that is going to be the most time consuming to implement that I have seen over my career. So again, if you have not started on this implementation, um, you really do need to start now. This is effective for June 30, 2022, year in financial statements, and then the following 1231, 2022 financial statements. So why are we doing this? Why was this standard implemented? Um, GASB 87 is establishing a single model for lease accounting. It's based on the foundational principle that leases really are financings of a right to use an underlying asset. So under the current standards, we have capital leases that are reported on your balance sheet. We have operating leases that are not. Um, this consolidates all the accounting where we have one model for all types of leases and majority of the time those are going to be put onto the balance sheet um, as a lease asset and a liability from the lessee's perspective. So it's going to be more transparent to readers about what activity you do actually have going on related to leases. Um, so again, it's a transparency 
the usefulness of the information that is within your financial statements was one of the primary purposes for this change. So what is a lease? What kind of contracts um, do we care about that fall under the standard that we need to do all of the GASB 87 accounting for? The definition under the standard of a lease is a contract that conveys control of the right to use another entity's non-financial asset, which is the underlying asset, as specified for the contract for a period of time in an exchange or exchange-like transaction. A lot of information there. So we're going to take this definition and we are going to piecemeal it out and cover all the key terms of this definition. So a contract. Um, it was debated by the board um, using the term agreement versus contract. One of the primary reasons why they chose to use the word contract is it requires leases, whether written or verbal, as long as they're legally enforceable to be within the scope of this statement. Um, so one of the biggest things I have been pointing out to my client base is as you're going through and identifying your leases, um, yes, you have the easy leases that you know about, you know, the ones you're already accounting for is either capital or operating. That's kind of the easy ones to identify. Um, but you probably likely have other leases out there that maybe the, the title of the contract is not lease contract or lease arrangement or lease agreement. Um, it may not even have lease in the title of the transaction or the, or the agreement or contract. Um, these embedded leases, which are, um, you know, just you have a contract and within that contract, you're being given the right to use another entity's asset or vice versa. The part of that contract that meets the definition of the, definition of a lease falls under GASB 87 and needs to be accounted for as such. So that's going to be um, one of the, the biggest hurdles, I think, in the time-consuming piece. It's just evaluating the contracts that uh, you currently have out there and are there any embedded leases within those contracts. When we get to the end of the end today and talk about implementation steps, um, we will talk about some ways to try to identify those embedded leases. Um, as efficiently as possible. So we have to have a contract that gives the right to use another entity's asset. So what is a right to use? A right to use, you have to have both the right to obtain the present service capacity from the use of the asset and the right to determine the nature and manner of use of that underlying asset. So think about a vehicle lease. Um, you know, you, you lease a vehicle, of course, you have the present service capacity of that vehicle, and you can determine where to drive that vehicle. You have a right to use that asset. So you have to have both of these um, to meet the right to use criteria of this definition. And it may seem straightforward, but it is not always straightforward. So we're going to go through a couple of examples um, that I've pulled out of the GASB implementation uh, guides. And in each of these that I pulled out of the implementation guides, I've actually listed what guide and what question in case you want to refer back to that um, or look through other surrounding questions that also deal with the right to use that I just can't cover today. Um, so let's go through a few examples to kind of show how maybe this isn't as straightforward as you think it would be. Uh, government enters into a multi-year agreement for the right to use a facility. The government has exclusive use of the facility for three days a week. Other parties use, use the facility on the other days. So the question is, to meet the definition of a lease, is the government required to have uninterrupted control 
i.e. be the only ones using that facility um, in order to meet the right to use definition? And the answer to this is no. So this does meet the definition of a right to use, even though they're only using it three days of the week, because when they are using it, they have exclusive use of that facility. So they have a right to use that receipt. They have the present service capacity of that facility, and they get to determine how to use that facility. It doesn't matter that the other four days other parties are using it, as long as when the government is using it, they have exclusive use of that facility. Another example, a government enters into an agreement that allows a rancher to use the government's land for grazing. The agreement states that the rancher is required to allow access to the land for compatible public recreation activities. In addition, the agreement states that the government can construct roads and buildings or otherwise alter the land without permission from the rancher. Does the grazing rights agreement meet the definition of a lease? And in this case, it does not. So this, this rancher does not have the right to use as defined by GASB 87, so this would not be a lease. And the reason for this is, although the rancher can use the land, the government can also go in and do you know, pretty much whatever they want. They can hold public rec activities, they can build roads, they can build buildings. So the rancher does not have exclusive use of this land. Um, and a similar question kind of around that area of the Q&A that I don't have a slide on is question 4.3. Um, similar facts and circumstances, but it's giving hunting rights to a party during the hunting season only. Um, and during the hunting season, season, the person receiving those rights is the only one that can access the land and use the land and they can use it how they see fit. In that case, that does provide a right to use because the government can't also go in and hold public recreation activities while the hunter is on the land during hunting season. So it's, it's nuances, so you really need to read through those agreements and make sure that a right to use does exist. The last example I'm gonna go over for a right to use asset, because I think you know a lot of governments may have these type of agreements out there, um, is related to cell phone towers or antenna placement agreements. Um, are these leases? And the answer is likely yes. So if you have these type of agreements, likely they do meet the definition of a lease, including the control criterion. So to have control, it's generally met if the cell phone tower or antenna placement agreement conveys control of the right to use the land on which the tower is placed, or even a connection point to which an antenna is fixed on an existing tower. Um, so even if somebody has an agreement to fix an antenna on your tower and you're able to move the antenna around on the tower, that's still a lease, even if you can move the antenna spot because they still have the same right to use that right to use that asset. They're still getting the same connection point, the same service from that connection point. So I just wanted to point out, if you have cell phone tower agreements or antenna placement agreements, those are ones that likely are leases that maybe you have not accumulated under the old standards. So the definition, you have a contract of a right to use another entity's non-financial assets. So what is a non-financial asset? Well, the standard said it's one that's not a financial asset as defined by GASB 72, which came out a handful of years ago. Uh, but most commonly, you know, you think of buildings, land, vehicles, equipment. Others do exist that would qualify as leases. I think the main ones we kind of just talked about that relate to cell phone tower connection points, which you may not initially think about as being an asset. 
we have a contract, a right to use another entity's asset, non-financial asset, in an exchange or exchange-like transaction. So it has to have economic substance. Leases for nominal values are not going to be included under this standard. Um, so I know a lot of governments do have various leases that are maybe only for a dollar a year. So maybe you're leasing land for a dollar a year or you're leasing land to another entity for a dollar a year. Those lack economic substance. So it's not an exchange or exchange-like transaction. They are not accounted for under GASB 87. I do want to point out that uh, many of you are aware that the GASB is working on a revenue and expense project that's going to clarify accounting for non-exchange transactions like free office space rent or these dollar-a-year leases that you occasionally see. Within the standard, there are scope exclusions. So these are transactions that even though they may initially seem to meet the definition of a lease, they are excluded from being accounted for under GASB 87, primarily because we already have standards that tell us how to account for these kind of transactions, or they're working on standards in the future to tell us how to account for these kind of transactions. So transactions that are excluded under 87 accounting, uh, the first is leases of intangible assets, which I think is gonna impact most governments. Uh, the easiest example of this is licensing contracts for computer software. Uh, many of you are aware GASB 96 has been issued, and that does cover how to account for these transactions. Um, that is effective a year later than GASB 87. So it's something you want to keep in the back of your mind as you work through leases, um, because the accounting for leases of intangible assets under GASB 96 is really similar to GASB 87. There's just some nuances there that they wanted to um, highlight because licensing of computer software is in intangible assets is a little bit different than tangible assets. Um, but generally speaking, if you can get your hands around GASB 87, I think implementing GASB 96 um, will be a little bit easier for you. Um, leases for biological assets, so these are animals, don't fall under this. Leases of inventory. Service concession arrangement contracts also do not fall under this. So we currently have, have GASB 60 that outlines how to account for service concession arrangements. I will point out, again, just public service announcement, GASB 94 has been issued um, that is a much broader scope standard than GASB 60 as it relates to how to account for public-public and public-private partnerships or PPP arrangements. Um, GASB 60 is very narrow, so a lot of these PPP arrangements did not fall under that standard. The new standard that has come out is a lot broader, so likely if you have these kind of transactions and you have not read through GASB 94, just a public service announcement, you might want to take some time to do that because I think a lot of those arrangements are now going to fall under that new standard when that is effective. Leases where the underlying asset is financed with outstanding conduit debt is also excluded, and supply contracts are excluded. Um, supply contracts give you the right to an asset's output not the right to use the actual underlying asset itself. So it, it doesn't really meet the definition of a lease. Okay, now let's actually dive in to a little bit more of the technical aspect of this standard. So throughout this presentation, you're gonna see these little uh, header slides and that denotes that we're going into a new section of the standard and below 
the header, I have put the paragraph references. So as we go throughout this or as you go throughout implementation, if you refer back to any of the slides for anything and you, you need more information from the standard, you can go to the header slides and figure out where in the standard you can start to look. So um, that's kind of what those paragraph references are for, um, is just to navigate throughout the standard if you go back and use these slides later. The first thing we're going to talk about is identifying the lease term. Um, so we've identified, you know, definitionally what kind of contracts are leases under GASB 87. So now you have your lease population. One of the first things you're going to need to do then is for each of those leases, figure out what your lease term is. So this is covered under paragraphs 12 through 15, and this information applies to both lessees and lessors alike. So what is the lease term? The lease term is the non-cancelable period, which we're going to define that on the next slide, plus the lessee's option to extend, if reasonably certain to exercise it, plus the lessee's option to terminate, if it's reasonably certain not to exercise it, plus the lessor's option to extend, if it's reasonably certain to be exercised, plus the lessor's option to terminate, if it's reasonably certain not to be exercised. All of that added together equals the lease term. Um, so let's go in, let's define that non-cancelable period, which is kind of our starting point. It's almost more easily defined by what it's not. <laughs> um, so this is periods where both, periods where both the lessee and the lessor have an option to terminate without permission from the other party, or if pro both parties have to agree to extend, those are considered cancelable periods and are not included in the lease term. So any periods that meet that definition are cancelable, so they are not in your lease term. The easiest example of this is rolling month-to-month -month leases. So, you know, a lot of leases might be for five years and then it just goes month-to-month -month until one party exits or a new agreement is entered into. Um, that month-to-month -month piece of that is a cancelable period because either party can walk away, so it is not included in the lease term. So the lease term is a non-cancelable period, and then you're going to add either the lessee's or the lessor's options, depending on if they're reasonably certain or not. So how do you determine if something's reasonably certain? The standard actually provides us some guidance on this as well. So one criteria you can look at is the significant economic incentives of the option, especially an option to extend. So if you think about it, having a five-year lease with maybe, you know, a three-year renewal option, if it looks like the three-year renewal option, you know, it has, it has favorable terms um, economically and you're still going to need the asset, you know, maybe that makes it more likely that you're going to exercise that option to extend. You can also look at significant economic disincentives. So maybe it would cost too much to terminate this lease and enter into a new lease. Um, you know, think about negotiation costs. Maybe you put significant leasehold improvements um, that you would lose if you didn't extend or you terminated early. Those are all types of economic disincentives to consider, whether it's reasonably certain to exercise an option or not. One of the easiest is just your history. Um, do you historically exercise your options? If you do, then it's probably more likely you're gonna continue to do that unless there's some specific reason why you wouldn't. And then how essential is the underlying asset to your operations? So if you have an asset, um, and you're leasing it for five years and there's a five-year renewal option and it's it's an asset that you're going to need you know 10 years from now 
likely because of all the other factors of time it takes to enter into a new lease, you know, probably reasonably certain are going to extend that. So again, all those options to extend or terminate, you really just have to evaluate, is it reasonably certain that it's going to be elected or not? And you know, there's a chance that if a lessee is looking at it, they might come to a different conclusion than the lessor. So, you know, there, there's no requirement that the lessee and the lessor talk and come to the same conclusion. So this is all kind of an assumption. This is part of the estimation process of the lease implementation. A lot of governments in multi-year contracts have fiscal funding or cancellation clauses. So how should these be taken into account? Um, really, they probably shouldn't. So fiscal funding clauses do not impact the lease term unless it's reasonably certain that the clause will be exercised. Um, I know a lot of contracts have this in, in fiscal funding clauses within the contracts, I know a lot of times they are not exercised. Um, so probably it's more likely that they're just not going to impact your lease term, unless there's some specific reason that you think it's likely you're going to exercise that clause, just because the clause is there does not mean it's going to impact your lease term. So you have identified your lease term and you do this at the start of the lease um, or at the date of implementation. But once we get into the lease, you know, five years from now, this lease term assessment is going to be done at the start of the lease. Um, there is a chance you may have to reassess that lease term if one of these items occurs. So the lessee or the lessor, if they exercise an option, even though it's previously determined that it was reasonably certain they would not exercise it, you're going to need to reassess your lease term. So for example, um, you have a five-year lease with a five-year renewal option. When you entered into the lease, um, you're pretty sure you weren't going to exercise the extension option, but five years came up and you decided, oh, we actually are going to take the next five-year renewal option. You would need to reassess your lease term because when you first calculated all of your calculations, you did it based on a five-year look instead of a 10-year look, which is going to impact the values involved once we get into looking at the debits and credits. The opposite also holds true. The lessee or the lessor elects to not exercise an option, even though it was previously determined it was reasonably certain they would. So this is the opposite. You have a five-year lease with a five-year renewal. You're pretty reasonably certain you were going to exercise the renewal when you entered into the lease. The first five years has come up and you've decided you're not going to elect the option. You're going to need to reassess that lease term. And then some leases may have events specified in the lease contract itself that requires an extension or termination of the lease if the event takes place. So if that event happens and it's extended or terminated because of that event, um, you'll likely have to reassess the lease term as well. One thing I do want to point out, these are for all events that actually took place. This is not changing your probability assessment. So when you entered into the lease, if you thought it was reasonably certain you were going to exercise an extension option, and then three years in, you now think it's reasonably certain you're not going to exercise the extension option in a couple years. That does not mean you reassess the lease term. The event actually has to take place. So you have to wait until that five-year period and you actually either elect or don't elect the extension option to reassess the lease term. So that was something I did want to point out there. Now let's go through some examples about what is the lease term. We have a couple examples here. So the first one, a lease contract has a non-cancelable period of five years. 
and it specifies at the end of the five years, both the lessee and the lessor have the right to cancel the lease or continue the lease on the same terms month to month. What is the lease term? So we've kind of already talked about this. Month to month leases where you know either party can walk away are considered cancelable periods, so they would not be included in the lease term. So in this case, this lease term for for this information provided is going to be five years. The month to month piece is non-cancelable. How does a bargain renewal option? such as a 20-year lease at a market rate with a lessee's option to renew for an additional five years at a 30% discount affect the lessee's initial assessment of the lease term. The GASB's answer to this is the government needs to assess all the factors relevant to the likelihood that the option will be exercised. So even though there's a huge discount out here, it does not automatically mean you're going to include the renewal term in your lease term. You still need to go through that assessment process. Is it reasonably certain that you're going to exercise this option? My note is, assuming you're going to need the asset for, you know, 25 years instead of just 20, that's a pretty nice discount. It, it probably would lay heavily towards being reasonably certain that you're going to extend that. But maybe you do only need the asset for 20 years. So there's always other factors in place. So again, this was more highlighting the fact that just because there's a large discount out there does not mean just automatically include that additional five years in your lease term. You still need to go through that assessment process on the likelihood of exercising that option. Our last example for lease terms, a uh, lease contract allows either party to unilaterally terminate the lease at any time but also provides for cancellation penalties. So either party can walk away, but they're gonna have to pay a penalty. The penalties are so great that it's reasonably certain that neither party will terminate the lease because of how much it's gonna cost them should the cancelable periods be excluded from the lease term. And the answer to this is yes. So what they're highlighting here is the fact that unilaterally either party can walk away. So even though the, there's these great penalties for walking away, which would be an economic disincentive, because either party can walk away, this is still a cancelable period. So again, it's got to be just the lessee's option or just the lessor's option that's evaluated. But if you're under a period where either party can walk away, it's cancelable and it's not going to be included in your lease term. Um, if, you, if you get into the Q&As, read the implementation guide, this is question 415. 416 kind of talks about the flip side of that, about if only one party has the option, but there's a penalty involved. You know, it goes through the process of, well, you still need to evaluate it. Is it reasonably certain or not? Although a large penalty would probably largely factor into that decision. So we have talked about how to identify leases. Now, now we've talked about with the leases you've identified that meets the definition of GASB 87, how to determine the lease term. We've talked about scope exclusions, transactions that are not going to be included under the standard. We're now going to talk about some exceptions that are within the standard itself. So while these transactions might meet the defini definition of a lease, you may not necessarily need to follow full GASB 87 accounting for it. These items are covered under paragraph 16 through 19. And again, these apply to both lessees and lessors alike. Short-term leases. Leases that are considered short-term can continue to be accounted for kind of like we're currently count, uh, accounting for operating leases. So 
as you make the lease payments, it's gonna be an expense. As you receive lease payments, it's gonna be a revenue. So what are short-term leases? A lease is short-term if at the commencement of the lease term, the maximum possible term under the lease contract is 12 months or less. This includes any option to extend regardless of the probability of exercising the option. So example, um, we have a lease, it's 12 months, and then you have a one-year renewal. Even if you think it's 100% unlikely you're gonna exercise the extension option, because there's a possible 24 months under this lease contract, it is not a short-term lease because you cannot take into account the probability of exercising any extension options. Um, another example, um, maybe you have some equipment that you only need seasonally. So you're under a three-year lease, but you're only leasing the equipment for three months of each of those three years because you only need it maybe during the summer. Um, so the total months that you're leasing that equipment over the three years is only nine months. That would be a short-term lease. You can just expense the payments as you pay them or record it as revenue as you receive them. Um, so again, these are items that, although they meet the definition of a lease, you don't have to necessarily follow all the GASB 87 requirements if they are short-term leases. Okay, so this example, like I said, I think normally short-term leases are, are fairly easy to identify um, once we get through implementation. But I think on implementation, there's some nuances that you need to consider as you're working through implementing the standard. Uh, so here's an example. A city has a 10-year lease that began July 1st, 2012. It ends June 30th, 2022. GASB 87 is effective for the fiscal year in June 30, 2022 financial statements. How should this lease be treated? And the answer is it depends, like it does a lot in accounting. Um, if you have a single year financial statement, so you're only presenting one year, this would be a short-term lease. Because on the day of implementation, which for single year financial statements would be 7-1-21, there is only 12 months left on the lease. It meets the definition of a short-term lease. So that lease you could exclude from all of your implementation work and just expend that last 12 months as you make the lease payments. That same lease though, if you do comparative financials, would not be a short-term lease and you would need to restate your June 30, 2021 financial statements. And we'll talk about this when we talk about transition towards the end of the standard, but you need to use the facts and circumstances of that lease as of July 1st, 2020, so a year earlier, which makes this no longer a short-term lease because now there's two years left or 24 months. Um, so it, it Depends if you're doing single year financials or you're doing comparative financials, um, if potentially leases during implementation are short term or not. And so, you know, once we get past implementation, I don't think that's going to be as much of a factor. But as you're going through this, you might, you know, keep that in mind, especially if you do comparative financial statements um, and maybe look at the cost benefits of potentially for this year just doing single year financials. Um, if, you, if you have a lot of leases that are, you know, in between, like this example, and they would be short-term if you only did a single-year financials, maybe you consider doing single-year financials. But again, evaluate the cost benefits of what the readers use. Um, there may be, you know, advantages as well of keeping to do comparatives just for your readers' purposes.
Transfer of ownership is the second exception that applies to both lessees and lessors alike. So these are leases that transfer ownership uh, or leases that transfer ownership are treated as finance purchase by the lessee and a sale of assets by the lessor. So really it's a financing. It's not really a lease. Um, just to point out, a transfer of ownership does not include a purchase option or a bargain purchase option until that option is actually exercised. So just because you have a lease that has a purchase option within it does not mean it's a finance purchase. Um, these are truly, maybe they say leases, but it really is financing the purchase of an asset. Also, these type of uh, transactions cannot have termination options within the contract because, again, if you can terminate it, then you're really not purchasing the asset. Okay, so, so far, everything we've talked about applies to lessees and lessors alike. Um, I, how to identify what falls under GASB 87, the scope exclusions, the lease term, short-term lease exceptions, transfer of ownership exceptions, all of that applies to lessees and lessors alike. Now we're going to go break it out, and we're just now for a while going to look at the lessee accounting, and then after that we will touch on the lessor accounting. Um, so lessee accounting within GASB 87 is going to be covered under paragraphs 20 through 39. And what is this going to look like for a lessee? So current standards under operating and capital leases, only your capital leases are showing up on the balance sheet. Under this standard, everything that falls under GASB 87 is going to show up on your balance sheet. So we're going to recognize a liability for future lease payments. And that's going to be offset with an intangible capital asset for the right to use the underlying asset. So at the entity, and this is entity-wide level reporting, at the entity-wide level, it is grossing up your balance sheet. So we're going to increase our assets through this intangible capital asset or right to use asset. And we're going to increase our liabilities to show that we owe these lease payments over future years. If you have governmental funds um, and leases within governmental funds, the governmental fund reporting you would only report the payables when the lease payments are actually due. It's very similar. You treat it the same way as you would like your normal bond debt payments. It's the only time it would show up at the fund level as a payable. And then, of course, we do not report capital assets under governmental fund reporting. So the capital assets wouldn't be at the fund level as well. Um, so again, at the entity-wide level, it grosses up the balance sheet. At the fund level, you're really just following normal fund level accounting um, for debt payments. This is very similar to just a bond payment, and we'll walk through the debits and credits here shortly. So how do we measure the lease liability and the intangible right to use assets? The first thing you're going to want to do is measure the lease liability, because a lease liability drives what your asset uh, balance is going to be. So the lease liability is measured by taking the present value of payments expected to be made during the lease term. So what is included in payments? Payments include fixed payments. Uh, those are pretty easy to identify. You know, you're, you have to pay $5,000 a month. Less any lease incentive receivable from the lessor. We're going to talk about lease incentives later. Um, but if you do have a lease incentive that the lessor owes you, you would subtract that from your fixed payments. You also are going to include any variable payments that depend on an index or rate. So this would be if you have a lease where in year one, you're paying $5,000 a month. And then in year two, that 5,000 is gonna be adjusted either up or down, depending on what the CPI does. 
um, you're still going to include these payments as part of your total payments expected to be made. You're just going to include them at the value that you know the day you enter into the lease or your date of implementation. So if it's $5,000 is what you know, that's what you're going to pay in year one. That's what you're going to use for the whole, let's just say, five-year lease term. You don't have to try to predict what CPI is going to do in the future. We have some examples related to that. Also included are variable payments that are fixed in substance. Um, so some leases you might be paying based on a percentage of sales. Um, well, we don't know what sales are going to be. We can't estimate that. But some of those those leases typically have a minimum guaranteed rent that's required to be paid. So maybe it's a percentage of sales with a minimum guarantee of $100,000 a year. That $100,000 a year, that's the guarantee, needs to be included in your payments for this calculation because you know at least you're going to have to pay that much. You don't have to predict the variable piece of that. Reasonably certain payments related to residual value guarantees are also included, as well as exercise price of purchase options, if it's reasonably certain that the option is going to be exercised. You would go ahead and include that in your payments for calculating the lease liability. Payments for penalties for terminating the lease, if the lease term reflects the lessee exercising an option to terminate, or exercising the funding clause, you would include the penalties as well. So you're only gonna include those termination penalties if you're included the termination period in your lease term. And then there's the other bucket, any other payments that are reasonably certain to be paid, um, but probably items one through six are gonna cover you. So you look through those payments, you add them together, that's your total payments expected to be made during the lease term. Um, and then of course, we gotta present value that back. Um, before we talk about discount rates and how to present value that back, let's go through some examples of calculating those total payments. So a lease payment, lease payments for a five-year lease are indexed by the CPI. The lease payments for the first year are $5,000 per month, which is the market rate based on the current CPI. And payments for subsequent years will increase or decrease based on the change in the CPI during the preceding year. The CPI at the commencement of the lease is 251. How should the initial lease liability be calculated? And again, like I mentioned, we can't predict what the CPI. We know the CPI today is 251. We don't know if it's going to go up or down in the future. So we're just going to use that $5,000 per month that we know now. We're going to use that for the whole 60 months or five-year period. Um, we'll discuss this here a little bit later when we talk about note disclosures, but any additional payments made in the future because the CPI increased, so let's say next year our payments are $5,200 a month because CPI went up, that $200 difference is just going to be an expense in that period. Um, let's say CPI actually went down and we're gonna pay $4,800 a month in year two, that $200 decrease is gonna reduce that period's expenses. So again, up front when we're calculating the liability, we go with the value we know, which in this case is the $5,000 for 60 months. So we know our total payments. We now need to present value those total payments. So what discount rate do we use? Within the standard, they based it in order of preference, what discount rate to use. So the primary rate they would like you to use would be the interest rate that the lessor is actually charging you, which may be implicit in the contract, um, may not be stated. You might be able to reach out to the lessor and they might have the rate that they have built implicitly into the contract. But a lot of times, you don't know that. Um, 
So they said the second way you can do your discount rate is by using the lessee's incremental borrowing rate. Um, one key thing I want to point out about the incremental borrowing rate is it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. Um, so you're not going to be able to say our incremental borrowing rate is 2%. We're going to use that for all leases because if a lease is a two-year lease or a 10-year lease, there's different risks involved and likely the rate would be different for a two-year versus a 10-year lease, for example. Um, so again, one size does not fit all. Um, unfortunately, the board rejected a couple options that would have made picking a discount rate a lot easier. Um, they rejected using a risk-free interest rate because they said leases are not risk-free, which makes sense. They also rejected the use of the municipal bond index rate because they thought the interest rate either implied in the contract or the lessee's incremental borrowing rate was a better representation than just a generic market rate. Um, so you are gonna have to come through some sort of process um, to determine what discount rate you're gonna use if you're gonna use your incremental borrowing rate. From an auditor's perspective, you know there needs to be support for how you came up with that rate and is it reasonable. There are tools out there. Um, for those of you that looked at software, you might be aware uh, Debtbook has a has a free tool. You don't even have to purchase a software. You can go out to their website um, that can help you calculate potentially what your incremental borrowing rate is. I think also, you know, get with your your bond council finance um, professionals may be able to help you build that incremental borrowing rate as well. But what, once we've determined our total payments, we've present valued them back, then it's just simple math going forward. We're just gonna amortize the discount rate into expense and reduce the lease liability. So you calculate your lease liability when you enter into the lease or in the day of implementation. There are some triggers where you may have to remeasure that liability if it's significant to the lease liability. So if any of these items happen and it's gonna significantly impact your lease liability, you need to remeasure that liability at that point in time. So maybe the lease term changes, which obviously would impact the liability amount. A, a residual value guarantee that was considered reasonably certain is now not, or the other way around. Because remember, if that was reasonably certain, it was included in our payments. Now, if you don't want to pay it or not going to pay it, that would affect your liability. Purchase option being exercised has changed, similar reasoning. Change in estimated amounts to be included in the measurement of the lease liability, change in interest rate charged to the lessee. If you use that as your initial discount rate, that would of course impact the liability. And then contingency on variable payments is resolved so that those variable payments really are now fixed. So maybe there's an event in the lease agreement says, you know, that's variable until that event happens and then you know you're gonna have to make payments. Um, if that occurs, that's going to impact your liability and you would need to remeasure it as well. If you have to remeasure your lease liability because of one of those items on the previous slide occurs, you should also remeasure the index or rate used on variable payments. Um, those should be adjusted as well if they significantly affect the liability. So you don't have to remeasure your lease liability just because CPI changes from year to year. But if you have to remeasure your lease liability for one of these items, they're saying you might as well update those variable payments to the known facts at this time. Remeasure those as well while you're going at it. I uh, just want to point out um, that these are for changes on assumptions. 
and not on the contract itself changing or being amended. That would be considered a lease modification and accounting for that, depending on how that amendment was done, could be different than this remeasurement accounting. So I did want to point that out. These are for changes on assumptions. The discount rate might also need to be remeasured as well. If the lease term changes, again, we talked about how a two-year versus a 10-year lease might have a dis different discount rate, um, or a purchase option assumption changes that could potentially impact the discount rate as well. So if one of those happens, you need to evaluate whether the discount rate is still reasonable. Um, you will not remeasure your discount rate just because your lessee's incremental borrowing rate changed. So if you used your incremental borrowing rate as the discount rate, and three years down the line, your incremental borrowing rate has gone up or down, you're not going to remeasure just because that happened. You're only going to remeasure if the lease term changes or the purchase option assumption changes. So that was how to calculate your lease liability and then what would trigger maybe having to remeasure that lease liability. The lease asset measurement starts with what your lease liability value is. So that's why I said you're going to have to start with your lease liability first. So you take your lease liability, then you're going to add any payments made to the lessor at or before the commencement of the lease because that would still value the asset, but it's not part of your liability because you already made the payments. You'd subtract out lessor incentives paid at, at or before the commencement of the lease for kind of the opposite reasons. And then you're also able to add or should add in certain direct costs to place the asset into use. That's kind of normal capital asset accounting. So that's saying, you know, you have your lease liability and then if it costs you another $5,000 to actually get the asset functional and be able to use it for the purposes you need to use it for, that extra $5,000 is also going to be part of your lease asset, um, just like it would be part of a capital asset if you were doing the capital asset work. So all those items summed together equal your lease asset. If you incur any costs just related to like debt issuance costs or just costs to get the contracts done, those are all just going to be expensed when incurred. In future years, um, the accounting is really simple for lease assets. You're just going to amortize those in a systematic and rational manner over the shorter of the lease term or the useful life of the underlying asset. So similar to depreciation, um, but it's going to be called amortization because it's an intangible asset. Um, so if you have a piece of equipment that you are leasing, and typically if you would have bought the equipment, it would be seven years, you would depreciate that over, but you're only leasing it for five years, you're going to amortize that lease asset over the shorter, which is five years. The only caveat to that is if the lease has a purchase option and you're reasonably certain you're going to exercise that option, then you would amortize it over the useful life or the seven years because you know you're going to purchase it. So just amortize it over how you would amortize any other similar asset. Um, if that's the case and the asset is actually land that you're leasing, then you would not amortize it because you do not depreciate land. Just like the lease liability, you may need to remeasure the lease asset as well, but you're only going to remeasure it if you remeasure the lease liability. So this remeasurement is pretty simple. You would the lease asset is generally going to be adjusted by the same amount you adjust the lease liability. So if you had to remeasure the lease liability and it adjusted the liability by ten thousand dollars, 
the lease asset is going to be adjusted by that same $10,000. If the adjustment is actually a reduction and the reduction causes the asset value to go below zero, that difference is going to be reported as a gain. And even though this doesn't really relate to lease asset remeasurement, I put it on this slide so I wouldn't forget to inform you, but lease assets, like any other assets, can get impaired. Um, so if you have a lease asset and it becomes, excuse me, becomes impaired, you're going to need to follow impairment accounting for that as well. Um, so I did just want to point that out there um, in case you do have a lease asset become impaired. All new accounting standards tend to have new note disclosure requirements. The less E note disclosure requirements include a general description of the lease arrangements. So for, for some of your current leases, you already have this. So, you know, just describe what your lease arrangements are. Um, the total amount of lease assets and related amortization disclosed separately from your other capital assets. Amount of lease assets by major classes of underlying assets should be disclosed separately from other assets. Those two that I just talked about are going to be within your capital asset roll forward schedules. And I do have an example of that here in the upcoming slides of what that's going to look like. You also need to disclose amount of outflows recognized in the reporting period for variable payments that were not included in your initial liability calculation. So this would be the example of we're paying $5,000 a month but that's going to change over time based on CPI. So if in year two we're paying $5,200 a month, that $200 difference, whatever that totals for the year, needs to be included as in your disclosures for variable payments that were not included in your liability. Um, I think a lot of the lease software, if you, if you choose to use lease software, will track that for you. Um, amount of outflows recognized for other payments like residual value guarantees or termination penalties, again, if they were not previously included in the liability, need to be disclosed. Like any other debt, we also have to disclose the debt side, so your principal and interest requirements to maturity presented separately again for each subsequent five years and then five-year increments after that. That's just kind of a normal maturity schedule for government disclosures. Disclose any commitments you have under the lease. If your lease assets do get impaired, you need to have disclosures related to that. Um, there's other types of lease transactions, so sublease, sell lease back, lease lease back transactions. All of those have their own additional disclosures, and we will touch base on those quickly towards the end of this presentation in case you do have some of those transactions. You do not have to disclose collateral as long as a collateral is the underlying asset because it's already part of the disclosures. People know that those assets exist and are collateralizing the lease. We're now going to walk through a lessee example, go through debits and credits, um, not all of the disclosure requirements, but some of the disclosure requirements. I do want to point out that I did utilize ex excerpts from the GFOA lease tool examples. So for those of you on here that are GFOA members, I highly recommend going out to the GFOA um, logging in so you have access to these. Um, they have Excel files set up to help do present value calculations. They also have, I believe, seven or eight different um, facts and circumstances, and they present both the lessee and the lessor accounting for each of those circumstances. So it's a lot of good examples just to have and read through uh, that may or may not help you during your implementation process. 
So fast and circumstances, again, we're assuming, even though I, some of these years are prior to implementation date, that GASB 87 is effective already. Um, so this lease starts April 1st, 20, for 60 months. It's a $1,000 monthly payment due at the first of each month. The lessee incurs $2,500 in transportation costs and other expenditures to make the equipment ready for use. The government has an option to purchase the equipment for $2,000 at the end of the lease, which it's reasonably certain it will exercise. The government lessee estimates that the useful life of the capital equipment will be seven years. And the discount rate was actually provided to them by the lessor, which again, I don't think is going to be likely, but in this case it was, and it was 3%. So let's walk through the calculations here. So we have our $1,000 monthly payment for 60 months is our period. We know our discount rate is 3%. The rest of that is kind of basic fill-in information, so Excel will do the present value calculation for you. So the present value of the actual lease payments is 55791 However, since we are reasonably certain we're going to exercise this purchase option, we also need to include the purchase option cost into the lease liability. So we need to present value that payment back as well. In this case, we're just doing it by years, so five years at 3% the $2,000 future payment, that's going to be a, have a present value of 1725 Those two added together makes our present value of our lease liability when we enter into it of 57517 Within this lease tour, tool, it also has amortization schedules. So this is just a basic debt amortization schedule that has taken that $57,000 and it's amortizing it, showing us the principal and interest breakdowns. Um, this is just the top snippet of that, but it would eventually go all the way down to zero. Our lease asset under this example, we have to start with our lease liability value, which is $57,500. Then we get to add to that asset the cost it took us to get the equipment ready for use, or that $2,500. So our lease asset at the inception of the lease is $60,017. Um, so generally speaking, you know, it's going to be a gross up of your balance sheet. They're not going to be one for one, but they're going to be pretty close to being the same value um, at the start of the at the start of the lease. This is just the amortization of that lease asset. So again, we amortize this based on the shorter of the lease term or the asset's useful life. The lease term is five years. The asset's useful life is seven years. Unless we're reasonably certain that that purchase option is going to be exercised, which we were. So in this case, this is already being amortized over seven years because we were reasonably certain we're going to purchase this asset. So if you do the math, that's why it's seven instead of five. So the actual journal entries, this is assuming this lease activity is happening on a governmental fund, and I'm just using the general fund as an example. When you enter into the lease, calculate that lease value, the fund level entries is going to be a debit to expenditures capital outlay. This is similar to what you would do now if you had a capital lease. The credit is going to be to another financing source. So again, that's for the present value of the lease that we calculated. The cost it took you to get the asset ready to use, similar to any other asset cost at the fund level, it's going to be a debit to expenditures capital outlay for that $2,500. And then, of course, your cash is going to be reduced for the cash payment you made. These are fund-level entries. At the entity-wide or government-wide, 
then we have to remove that other financing source that we recorded at the fund level, and that becomes then a credit to our lease liability. So that increases our liabilities at the entity-wide level. We then need to record the lease assets at the entity-wide level because we report assets at the entity-wide level. And we're going to reduce the expenditures on your capital outlay line by that same amount. So both of these entries are pretty normal entries you're used to seeing when debt's involved, when capital assets are involved. It's just getting the calculations for the amounts to go into the entries. After year one or during the year, we're just gonna assume we're gonna do this once a year. Um, we have made cash payments on the lease for the whole year of $9,000. So our cash is gonna be credited for $9,000. And then at the fund level, that's going to be broken down between principal and interest expenditures based on our amortization schedules. So in this case, about $7,900 of principal and about $1,100 of interest. At the government-wide level, then, that principal expenditure goes away, and we're going to reduce our lease liability. So we're going to debit the lease liability for $7,900 and credit that expenditure principal for $7,900. And also at the entity-wide level, then we need to amortize that intangible right-to-use asset. So this is just based on the amortization schedule. We're going to record amortization expense of $6,400 um, and record that to accumulated amortization of $6,400. Um, one thing I didn't point out is it relates to amortization expense. Um, if you have financial statements, um, really proprietary fund statements where depreciation expense is shown on the face of the financials, this amortization expense can be included within that depreciation line, so you don't need a separate line on the face of the financials. Um, it can be included within your depreciation line. Here is an example of a capital asset roll forward under GASB 87. So the items highlighted in yellow are new. So you can see here that you know we're leasing buildings and equipment, and then we also have our own purchased buildings and equipment. We're not combining those. So we're separating out the leased assets from the non-leased assets, and then we're also breaking out the leased asset by the major asset category, buildings, equipment, so on and so forth. Down in the accumulated depreciation um, section, you can just combine all the accumulated depreciation for leased assets. It's not required to break that out by major component. Um, you could if you wanted to, but it's not required. Um, so this is just an example of what your capital asset footnote will look like um, once you implement GASB 87. And then this is pretty normal uh, note disclosure for the debt service payments. We're required to show principal and interest for the five subsequent years. In this case, the lease was only five years and then five-year increments after that if this happened to be more than five years. But this is just a normal maturity schedule that you're used to seeing with any sort of debt instrument that you have. Okay, we're kind of right on time. Um, so that is the less E side. So again, everything we just talked about applies to less Bs. Now, most of you said, well, we're both a lessee and a lessor. So I know how to handle my leases if I'm a lessee. How do I handle, handle them if I'm a lessor? The lessor accounting is really just a mirror. My slides are kind of frozen. Okay, there we go. It's really just a mirror of the lessee accounting. 
Um, so lessors, they're going to gross up their balance sheets as well, but they're going to be reporting a lease receivable, and that's going to be offset by a deferred inflow of resources. So again, balance sheet impact. Um, lessors are not going to de-recognize the underlying asset. If the lease agreement requires the lessee to return the leased asset in original or enhanced condition, you're not going to depreciate that asset during the lease term. Um, but if that's not the case, then the underlying asset it just continues to be reported and accounted for under normal capital asset accounting. That's entity-wide reporting. If you have governmental funds that these transactions are involved in, the governmental fund reporting is actually, in this case, similar to the entity-wide reporting. So that lease receivable and the deferred inflow of resources is going to show up at the fund level as well. Uh, the only nuance is, you know, your deferred inflow of resources, you have to take into account removing that when the revenue is not only earned but available at the fund level versus just earned at the entity-wide. So I just want to point out, don't, don't forget about this availability concept um, when you get into your governmental fund level reporting. Similar to the lessee side, that has to start with the lease receivable. The lessors are going to start with valuing their or their lease liability. The lessors are going to start by valuing their lease receivable. Um, the lease receivable is going to be the present value of payments expected to be received during the lease term. One thing you're going to notice if you had the slides up side by side between lessor and lessee accounting is that the list of payments included here is significantly shorter than it is on the lessee side. And we'll discuss a few reasons why once we get through this list. So the payments for lessors is going to include fixed payments, which is similar to what we've talked about, less any lease incentive payable that you still owe the lessee. Again, we'll talk about lease incentives in the future. Um, it's also going to include any variable payments that depend on an index or rate. So again, these would be those that are driven by CPI increases. You're going to go, go with what you know at the start of the lease or on the date of implementation. You're also going to still include any variable payments that are fixed in substance. Um, so these would be those items, you know, if you're receiving rent payments from a third party based on a percentage of sales, but at a minimum, they're going to owe you $100,000 a year, that $100,000 would be part of your payments. You're going to record with residual value guarantees only in this case if they are fixed. So on the lessee side, they're included if they're reasonably certain, but on the lessor side, they're only included if they're fixed. And we'll talk about that here in a second. And then like any other receivable, you need to evaluate collectability issues. Do you need an allowance for uncollectable accounts? So circling back to the residual value guarantees, a reason why this list is a little bit shorter is um, purchase options are not included if they're reasonably certain, and residual value guarantees are not included if they're reasonably certain, because from a lessor's perspective, that would increase an asset, and that would be equivalent to reporting a contingent asset, which we do not do under accounting. So that's why this list is a little bit shorter than the lessee side, because the lessee is, is reporting a liability, so if things are reasonably certain, they're gonna include it in their liability, on the lessor side, we're really just looking at these fixed or fixed type payments um, to record the asset. If you do have a purchase option and it does get exercised, that's just going to be a receivable slash revenue whenever that option is exercised. So it's not like it's never going to be reported, but it's just not reported up front. 
some more examples here. Um, a government leases retail space to a vendor for three years. The payment in the first year is $100,000. That's the minimum annual guarantee. The payment in the second year depends on the sales in the first year. If first year sales exceed a million dollars, the minimum annual guarantee in year two is 110,000. If sales are less than a million dollars, it's gonna stay at $100,000 for year two, but then drop to 90,000 in year three. So what amount should we include in the lease receivable at the start of the lease? And the answer is going to be the sum of the lowest possible minimum annual guarantee. So again, we need to go with what we know we're at least going to get. So we know in year one, we're at least going to get 100,000. We know in year two, we're at least going to get 100,000. We can't predict what sales are gonna do. So we can't use 110 because we don't know if sales are gonna be more than a million. Year three, we're gonna at least get 90,000 because again, we can't predict what sales are gonna do. So we're gonna go with what we know. So at a minimum, we're at least under this lease agreement gonna get $290,000. That's what's gonna go into our calculation. Similar um, to the lessee side, we, uh, once we have our total payments, we then need to use a discount rate to present value those back. The standard has these listed in order. So again, if the rate's stated in the contract, use that. The interest rate that you're charging the lessee would be the second option. Neither of those work. A prevailing or published rate for a similar instrument and credit ratings could be used. Then you could use the lessee's incremental borrowing rate or you know, the, the bottom line is gonna be using your, the lessor's estimated incremental borrowing rate. Again, most of the webinars I've attended, they're thinking, you know, most people are gonna to have to use the incremental borrowing rate, uh, but just know this is an order of preference. So if you, if number two you have, you need to use that as your discount rate. Again, once you present value that, then it's just simple math. You're gonna amortize the discount rate into revenue and reduce the lease receivable throughout the future years or periods. Similar to the lease liability for lessors or lessees, for lessors, the lease receivable may need to be remeasured if it's gonna be significantly impacted by a change in lease term, a change in the interest rate charged to the lessee, again, if you used that interest rate as your discount rate. And then if any contingency on variable payments is resolved, so that those now become really fixed. Um, so if any of those items happen, you need to remeasure your receivable. While you're remeasuring your receivable, you might as well update those variable payments to the most current index or rate. Um, but again, you're not going to remeasure it just because CPI increases. And similar to the lessee side, these are all for changes on assumptions not on the contract itself changing or being amended, that would be a lease modification, which we will talk about here shortly. The discount rate might also need to be remeasured for lessors if the lease term changes or that there is a change in the interest rate charged and that's what you used as the discount rate. So um, that would be when you would update your discount rate. So again, you're not gonna update it if you use an incremental borrowing rate just because the incremental borrowing rate changes, you're not gonna change your discount rate. It has to be one of these two items. So the lessor is gonna record a lease receivable. That's gonna be offset by a deferred inflow of resources 
the deferred inflow of resources is measured by starting with how what the value of the lease receivable is. So that's the starting point. Then you're going to add any payments received from the lessee at or before the commencement of the lease related to future periods. So if the lessee has to pay the last month up front, that's going to be added because it's not in the receivable because you've already been paid it and you haven't earned it yet. So it has to be deferred. You're going to also subtract out any incentives that you paid at or before the start of the lease, and that's going to equal your deferred inflows. Any direct costs you incur just to get the contracts finalized is just going to be an expense in the period that it is incurred. Future years for the deferred inflow is relatively straightforward. You're just going to amortize that in a systematic and rational manner over the term of the lease. Receivables, lease receivables may need to be remeasured like we talked about. The deferred inflow is only gonna be remeasured if the receivable is remeasured. Um, so generally the deferred inflow is gonna be adjusted by the same amount as the receivable. So again, if you remeasure your receivable and it goes up $10,000, your deferred inflow should also go up $10,000. If the adjustment is a reduction and it reduces your deferred inflow below zero, that would be reported as a loss. Lessors also have note disclosure requirements like lessees. Some of these are similar, some of these are not. Uh, so a general description of the leasing arrangements. You also need to disclose the total amount of inflows of resources recognized in the reporting period from leases, if you cannot see that on the face of the financial statements themselves. You need to disclose the amount of inflows recognized in the reporting period for variable and other payments that were not included in your initial measurement of the lease receivable. This would include any inflows related to residual value guarantees and termination penalties. So again, it's just letting readers know, you know, we have these additional payments that we didn't include in our lease receivable, but we did receive them. So that just needs to be disclosed to users of the financial statements. There are some transactions that are set up where as a lessor, you have debt and the debt is backed. The principal and interest payments of that debt or bond issue is backed or secured by lease payments from the lessee. If that's the case and there exist terms and conditions of options by the lessee to terminate the lease or abate payments, then that needs to be disclosed as well. Um, so again, just know if you have debt that's backed by lease payments, you'll need to look into the standard. There's some disclosure requirements there as well. There are also additional specific disclosure requirements for any of these type of transactions, which we'll talk about separately. That would be is if you're leasing assets that are considered investments, if you have regulated leases, sublease transactions, sell lease back transactions or lease lease back transactions, all of those are going to potentially have some additional disclosure requirements. If the lessor's principal operations consist of leasing assets to other entities, you should disclose a schedule of future payments of the lease receivable showing principal and interest separately for subsequent five years and five-year increments. Um, so again, this would be if only for principal operations consists of leasing activities, that that would need to be disclosed. You do not have to report the carrying amount of assets on lease. 
or held for leasing and related accumulated depreciation anymore. So you do get to get rid of some disclosures that we are currently doing. On top of the short term and um, financing, finance purchase exceptions, the lessors have two additional exceptions that lessees do not related to GASB 87 reporting. The first one of which is leases of tangible assets that are investments by definition under GASB 72. So if you are leasing assets that you are reporting as investments, that falls under this exception. You do not report a lease receivable um, because the lease investment assets are already reported at fair value. You do, however, still have this disclosure though, if, if the lease is backing debt payments, you still need to disclose the existence of any termination options by the lessee. The second exception lessors have is regulated leases. And we're gonna go over those separately now. Um, so regulated leases are gonna affect, you know, mostly airports, those type of entities. Um, so what is a regulated lease? To be a regulated lease, three items have to be met. The first is the lease rates cannot exceed a reasonable amount. And that reasonableness is subject to, to determination by an external regulator. The lease rates should be similar for lessees that are in similar situations. And the lessor cannot deny a potential lessee the right to enter into a lease if the facilities are available, provided that the lessee uses the facilities um, with generally applicable use restrictions. So if those three items are met for a lease, it is considered a regulated lease. And that means you as the lessor should just recognize inflows of resources or revenue based on payment provisions of the lease contract. And you also have to provide some certain other disclosures. So you don't have to do all of the receivable deferred inflow accounting. You're just gonna recognize those inflows as you receive the payments under the contract. But you do have additional disclosure requirements specifically for regulated leases. And those are these items here. So a general description of those arranged agreements. The extent capital assets are subject to preferential exclusive use by counterparties under agreements, and that needs to be by major class of asset and major counterparty. The implementation guide, if, the, if you have this situation, the implementation guide has several Q&A specifically about this that are very helpful. Um, you also need to disclose the total amount of inflows recognized in the reporting period from these agreements, if you cannot determine that from the face of the financial statements themselves. You do have to uh, disclose the schedule of expected future minimum payments for each subsequent five years and five-year increments after that. That is something you're probably already disclosing. So some of these disclosure requirements are not really new, um, but you do have to specifically disclose them for regulated leases. You also need to disclose any inflows recognized in the reporting period for variable payments that were not included in your future minimum payment schedule. That's number four above. And then again, if, if these leases are backing debt payments and there's options to terminate or abate lease pay payments by the lessee, just those terms and conditions need to be disclosed as well. So let's go into an accounting example from a lessor's perspective. We already covered a lessee perspective. So facts, uh, the lease starts July 1st, 20. It's a 10-year lease with a third party who leases two floors of one of the government's buildings. The monthly payments are due at the beginning of the month for $3,000 a month. The lessor receives the last month's rent at the start of the lease. 
The total due from the lessee at its inception is $357,000. That's just the $360 that would be owed less that $3,000 payment the government already received. The interest rate is assumed to be 2.5%, which they estimated based on the government's return on investments. And the government's going to continue to report the building and depreciate it on a straight line basis because for lessors, you don't, do not remove the capital assets. So what does this look like? The present value calculation, we're going to use $3,000 a month. We're going to use 119 periods instead of 120 because we already received one payment up front. We're going to use 2.5% for our annual interest rate, all the other just inputs you need to put in to get Excel to calculate, and our present value of our lease payments is going to be 316556 So at the inception of the lease, that's going to be our lease receivable. Again, we'll need to amortize that for future periods. So this is just a screenshot of a piece of the amortization schedule. In year one, um, we would have received roughly $15,000 of principal and $3,000 of interest. The deferred inflow that's going to be the credit side of our journal entry is going to start with the lease receivable balance of $316,556. But we have to add in that $3,000 payment we received up front for the last month's rent because we have not earned it yet, so it needs to be deferred. So our total deferred inflows is going to be $319,556. This then is just the amortization schedule for the deferred inflow, relatively straightforward. It's just being amortized over that 120 months. So journal entries. Again, this is assuming this transaction happens in a governmental fund. I just picked the general fund. When we receive that last month's rent up front, we're going to increase our cash by debiting it for $3,000. And then we're going to credit the deferred inflows or resources because, again, we have not earned that revenue. For the lease receivable piece of this, we're going to debit lease receivable at the fund level for that $316,000, and then that's going to be credited to deferred inflows as well. So you can see here again, the, the gross up of the balance sheet is almost one for one, not quite, um, but it's going to be relatively close. So in the year of implementation, I think your net uh, equity impact, whether that's fund balance or net position at what level you're on, I think is going to be relatively minimal. Because at the start of these transactions, both sides are close to the same balance. For the lessor side in this case, we have no government-wide entries right now at the inception of the lease to do because everything is reported at the fund level. So it just carries across the two, two types of reporting. For the first year, we received $18,000 in cash over the first year, which is going to be debited. We're going to credit our lease receivable for the piece of that that is related to the principal, which is roughly that $15,000. And then the rest of that, we're going to record as interest revenue. So the $3,000 will be interest revenue. Then we also need to adjust our deferred inflows. And this is just going to be based on that amortization schedule. We're going to reduce the deferred inflows by debiting it. And the amortization for the first year came up to about $16,000. That's going to be recorded as lease revenue. Um, so again, as long as your lessee is making payments on time, these entries are pretty straightforward at the fund level. Um, if they're behind on payments, then that, that last entry here on the slide related to recognizing the lease revenue and reducing the deferred inflow, you do need to take into account availability if they are getting behind on payments, and that would be at the fund level only. But this is assuming that the lessee is making payments timely. 
And then at the NAY level, really the only entry is to record depreciation on the building because we still have the building on our books and records. Um, you don't have to, you know, do these entries separate from all your other capital asset entries. This is just for example purposes. Um, this would just be part of your normal capital asset entry work, whether you do that monthly, quarterly, or at year end. So that is the lessee and the lessor accounting and some examples there. Um, the rest of the standard is what I would call miscellaneous topics. Um, so with the rest of our time, we're going to touch on these miscellaneous topics. We're going to talk, talk about transition. Then we'll talk about some implementation steps. But the first one we're going to talk about is lease incentives, which is covered in paragraph 61 and 62. We have touched on lease incentives that it may impact some of your payment calculations, um, but we haven't really defined what they are. So lease incentives are payments made to or on behalf of the lessee or other concessions granted to the lessee. And some examples of those are rebates, discounts, maybe the lessor assumes a pre-existing lease for the lessee so that they get out of that lease and enter into their lease, any other reimbursements of lessee costs, rent holidays, reduction of payments by the lessor, any of those are examples of lease incentives. So if you have those, what do you do with them from an accounting perspective? If those incentives are paid at or before the commencement of the lease, you're gonna include it in the initial measurement by reducing the amount of the lease asset. If the incentives are paid after the start of the lease, you're gonna reduce payments to be made when performing the initial lease liability and receivable calculation. So that's when we're talking about when you're, when you're calculating your total payments, you would take your fixed payments minus this receivable from the lessor or minus what you owe the lessee as part of that fixed payment calculation. If the incentives are variable, you're not gonna include them because again, we can only deal with what we know at the start of the lease or at the day that we implement the standard. You may also have contracts with multiple components. So this could include contracts that have both lease and non-lease components. This could include lease contracts that are, it's all a lease, but you have multiple assets being leased. Um, so maybe you are leasing an asset and equipment within the same agreement. Um, there are specific accountings for these multiple components contracts covered under 63 and 70 of, paragraph 63 and 70 of GASB 87. So in general, these would be, again, um, you would need to separate out, if you had a, a contract that had lease and non-lease components, you would need to separate out between the lease and non-lease components. If you have a contract that has multiple underlying assets, in certain cases, you should account for each asset separately. Um, so if example, they have different lease terms or if they're in different major classes of assets, again, if one contract you're leasing buildings and equipment, um, you know, if you're leasing six vehicles under the same contract for the same time period, you don't necessarily need to break that out. So this is more if you have different lease terms or different major assets within the same contract. There could be instances where you might enter into multiple contracts at or near the same time with the same entity, the same third party, but those contracts are really negotiated as a package with a single objective or the and the cost of one contract might depend on the performance of another contract. If that's the case, then instead of treating these as two separate contracts, you really treat them as one contract with multiple components and follow the accounting within this section of the standard. 
So what does that accounting look like? Again, this is an order of preference. They would prefer you to allocate the prices to the components at the contract price if you know them and it appears reasonable. If it's not known in the contract, um, you use your best estimate to separate out the price. If you cannot do either of those, you need to treat all, you just treat all components as a single lease unit, which means you're gonna base your facts and circumstances of that lease based on the primary asset that you're leasing. So again, if you have a contract that is leasing both building and equipment, you know, it'd be probably a good assumption that the building's the primary component of that lease contract. Um, you're just gonna use the facts and circumstances related to that asset to determine your accounting. Again, that's the last option. So they really prefer you to allocate it if you can, either based on known prices or on an estimate. Um, if you go with the third route, there probably needs to be some documentation of why you can't allocate that price to support that accounting treatment. Lease modifications and terminations are covered under paragraph 71 through 79 of the standard. Um, so we had talked when we talked about remeasuring our lease liability or receivable, that we're remeasuring based on changes of assumptions and not if the contract itself was changed. Um, so lease modifications are amendments to the contracts. Um, they modify provisions of the contract and they should be treated as a lease modification unless the lessee's right to use the asset decreases, then it's gonna be treated as a partial or full termination. Um, so examples would be changing the contract price, lengthening or shortening the lease term, adding or removing underlying assets. Um, to determine if the lessee's right to use asset decreases, just some examples there. Um, you know, if the number of assets leased decrease, so maybe you were originally leasing four assets and now you only have access to three, um, that would be a decrease in the right to use because you don't have as many vehicles to access. Uh, a reduction in the lease cost without the decrease in the right to use the asset would be a modification, not a termination. So this would be, I'm leasing four assets for $500 a month. Now I'm still leasing four assets, but the contract was changed and I'm only paying $400 a month. Well, my right to use stayed the same. I just don't have to pay as much for that right to use those assets. So that's not a termination, even though your total costs went down. So it's really based on your right to use, not on how much you're paying under the lease. Both the lessee and the lessor should treat modifications as a new lease if both of these items exist. That the lease modification gives the lessee an additional lease asset by adding one or more underlying assets that were not included in the original lease and the associated increase in lease payments for the additional lease assets does not appear to be unreasonable based on the terms of the lease and professional judgment involved. So if you're receiving more assets and you're paying more for them and it's all reasonable, it's really gonna be treated as a new lease. If both of those are not met, then you're just going to remeasure the lease liability and lease receivable as we have discussed on previous slides. Um, the associated lease asset or deferred inflow is gonna be adjusted by the same amount that you remeasure the liability and receivable. Again, if those adjustments cause a lease asset or deferred inflow to go below zero, that's just gonna be a gain or loss for the difference. And then for lessors, to the extent that the change relates to the current period, you should recognize that in the period of change. 
If you have a lease termination, the lessee should reduce the carrying value of the asset and liability and recognize a gain or loss for the difference. If the lease is terminated because you purchased the asset, you should reclass that asset to the proper asset class of owned assets. So, you know, it was showing up as leased equipment, but now you bought it. It's going to come out of your leased equipment line on your roll forward and go up to just your equipment line. For lessors, you should reduce the carrying value of the receivable and deferred inflow and recognize a gain or loss for the difference. And then again, if that termination is because the asset was sold, you need to remove that asset from your books and do your normal gain and loss calculation on that asset. Some of the last miscellaneous topics here, um, sublease and leaseback transactions are covered under paragraphs 80 through 87. Um, subleases have to have three parties, the original lessor, the original lessee that becomes the sublease lessor, and then the sublease lessee. Um, the original lessor and the sublease lessee get off easy. They're just gonna follow normal accounting for lessors and lessees respectively. If you're the middleman, you have to treat the transaction as two separate leases, and you need to disclose the subleases from the original leases. So you're gonna have both a lessee and a lessor transaction in these subleases. If you have a sell lease back, so you've sold the asset and you're leasing it back, you're going to treat that transaction as separate transactions. The only caveat of this is when you record your sell transaction, you have the gain or loss on the sell of the asset. That gain or loss is gonna be um, allocated to the term of the lease instead of recognized in the year of the sell. So if you had a $5,000 gain, and it's a five-year lease, that $5,000 gain is going to be allocated over the lease term instead of recognizing in the year of the sale. Um, if there's any off-market terms, um, that really should just be treated based on the substance of the transaction. Again, I would recommend if you have this activity to read in detail that section of the standard. Um, then you do need to disclose terms and conditions of the sale leaseback transaction. So that's some additional disclosure requirements. Lease leasebacks, an example of this, maybe a school district leases land to a developer, the developer builds the school and leases the school and the land back to the school district. If you have a lease leaseback transaction, you can account for this as a net transaction, but you need to disclose the gross amounts within your footnote disclosures. Intra-entity leases are covered under paragraphs 88 through 89, so this relates to component units. Um, if you have activity with a blended component units, these reporting requirements really do not apply. When the lessor is a blended component unit, the debt and assets of the lessor are already included within the primary government's assets, so it'd be kind of duplicating information. If you have transactions with a discreetly presented component unit, you would follow this statement because those are treated more like third-party transactions. You just need to make sure that you have a separate line for the related receivables and payables that are separate from other due to, due from component units and other lease receivable payables with third parties. So it just needs to have its own line on the balance sheet. Related party leases are also covered in the standard under paragraphs 90 and 91. Really, you're just gonna treat these um, like any leases with unrelated parties unless the relationship significantly impacts the transaction. You should disclose, though, all your leases with related parties, so similar to any related party disclosures you probably already do. Um, an example of a transaction being significantly impacted by the relationship would be maybe the lease is structured to be a short-term lease, so you don't have to follow GASB 87, 
but really it's not a short-term lease, uh, then you really need to account for it as not a short-term lease, however long that lease really is going to be. Um, so again, just because it's related parties, you guys can't get together and try to get out of the GASB 87 reporting requirements. Transition, getting to the end here. So you need to use the facts and circumstances that exist at the beginning of the period of implementation or the earliest period restated. So again, single year financials, if you're a June 30, 2022 year in, that would be 7-1-2021. If you do comparatives and you're a June 30 year in, that would be 7-1-2020. So you need to figure out what you're reporting to figure out what that day is. Then the facts and circumstances of the lease on that day is what you use to do the accounting, not what it was at the beginning of the lease. Lessors should not restate assets underlying their existing sales type and direct financing leases. This should be applied retroactively by restating financial statements for all prior periods presented. If it isn't practical, you can accumulate that effect and report it as a restatement of the beginning net position for the earliest period reported. Um, or earliest period restated, sorry. And then you also have your normal disclosure requirements for restatements, just like we do with any other um, restatement that we may do within the financial statements. Um, some additional information in the Q&A's question 4.23, it discusses if you can apply a capitalization threshold to leases. Um, and it's discussed that, you know, capitalization thresholds, they really relate to the asset side, not the liability side. So lease liabilities that are significant should be recognized. If you apply some sort of threshold as you're going throughout your implementation and the leases are below that threshold, you still need to try to, you need to, not try to, you need to accumulate those leases. And once you get through your process, look at all those leases that you thought were immaterial and see if they add up to something that is material. If they do, even though the resulting right to use asset might be below your capital asset threshold, it needs to be reported because that threshold does not apply to the liability side. So again, you can kind of use that as a guide for what you think might not be material, but you need to go back and evaluate if the sum of all of those is material or not. Um, one other thing related to transition and restating of financials, um, as it relates to the MDNA management discussion discussion and analysis. If you do a single year um, financial statement, you do not in your MDNA restate the prior year column. So that's going to stay as it was reported last year. Any changes between the years can be easily um, described to readers as, you know, implementing of the standard. If you do comparative statements, you don't have to go back and restate the third year that's shown in your MDNA. Again, the change would be because of the implementation of the new standard. Okay, we're through our polling questions. I'm just going to end this today by some best practices. And again, as with the GFOA um, examples I used earlier, there also is a white paper about best practices. This is not everything in there. So if you go out and pull those lease tools, you might also look at this white paper as well. I just pulled the steps I thought were the most applicable. So step one is really figuring out who's on your team to help identify these leases. Um, Finance is probably an obvious one. Uh, legal department, purchasing department, you know, those departments have their hands on contracts. They're going to be useful in helping to identify leases. Um, how decentralized or centralized are you? Um, it's going to depend on how complex it's going to be to identify all of your leases. 
look for agreements that you're not currently reporting as leases. So again, the low-hanging fruit is what you already know, your capital and operating leases. You know those likely are going to meet GASB 87 definition and need to be accounted for. But what about all your other potential leases? What are some ways to maybe go identify those unknowns? Uh, rental agreements, you can search vendor payments or general ledger chart of accounts. If there's an account um, that typically rent payments might go to, you know, have you have you um, accumulated all of the, the lease agreements related to those rent expenses? Or are you missing some? For large known lessors, you know, ask them, hey, provide us a list of all the all the assets that we're leasing from you. They should be able to do that. And then, of course, reviewing a board minutes um, might help you identify those as well. I think the most important is discussing the standard with the professionals across the government. So, yes, of course, finance accounting needs to know the standard, but you know, informed purchasing of the standard, um, give them a high overview of of what is in the standard and what to look out for because they see contracts come across their desk. They know enough to be able to flag a potential lease. Then they can send that to finance and accounting for the full evaluation. But having purchasing know enough to flag agreements is gonna be helpful for you, particularly going forward. You're gonna need some sort of controls, processes in place to identify leases. And going forward, that's gonna be very helpful. Same thing with legal, just because of their involvement in many contracts, of course. Um, they may be able to help at least flag potential leases under the standard. Other things to consider too is if you have any debt covenant requirements, you know, this is going to increase your liabilities on the lessee side. How is that going to impact those covenant requirements? If it's it's going to impact it to the point you're not going to meet that requirement anymore, you know, you need to have discussions now on changing that, getting that covenant requirement changed. Because um, really nothing substantially operational is changing. This is really an accounting change. And then, of course, updating your financial policies um, that reference operating and capital leases since those no longer exist. As you go about, now that we know about GASB 87, you know, if there's agreements out there or you're entering into new agreements specifically and something's just vague in the agreement, consider getting that more explicit so it's easier to do the accounting. Now that you know what you kind of need, make sure that the agreements outline what you need in order to account for it. That's going to probably be easier going forward with new agreements than ones that are already in place. And last but not least is just the implementation. So you've gotten through accumulating all your lease contracts. It's now just reporting that. Um, I think a lot of entities that have significant number of leases is probably going to use a software of some sort. Um, just make sure that software is going to give you what you need. Um, like I said, I, I know I've set through like DebtBook. They have some pretty good software and disclosure requirements um, to help you meet that standard. Um, but so there's also other um, softwares out there that are probably relatively the same. So again, just depending on your size, um, consider maybe getting a software to help you work through this every year. Um, and that is GASB 87. We went front through back of the standard. Um, again, not a whole lot of time for questions, but here's my contact information. Feel free to reach out um, if a question comes up later that you haven't thought about yet. Um, and I will turn it back over to Mike.